So, I went to the movies yesterday mm-hmm. with my two sisters and my brothers. Mm-hmm. Because we do, we usually go to a haunted house every year, but for timing reasons, we couldn't do that this year, so we just went and saw a scary movie. Uh-huh. And Keontae, uh-huh. a little trickster, loves <laughs> to play pranks on okay. all of us. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so he, he's done it to every single one of us, but he has an alarm that is titled Babe. With a heart. So it looks like somebody's calling him <laughs> under the name Babe. Okay. <laughs> so it's sort of like a, does he have a girlfriend? Yeah. And so when he did it in front of Kyla, she was the most dramatic and was like, oh my God, who's Babe? What's this? Uh-huh. And it was a big funny prank because it wasn't anything. Yeah. And then Brittany, I think, was a little more low-key. And he did it to me, but he did it to me in the theater during the M&M's, like, ad to silence your phone. <laughs> and so I saw it happen and didn't even care. I was just like, turn off your freaking phone, Keontae. <laughs> and he was so disappointed that his little prank didn't work. <laughs> and then he turned to, like, Kyla and Brittany, who uh-huh. know about the prank. And it yeah. just hasn't been done to me yet. Uh-huh. And they were like, told you she wouldn't care. <laughs> <laughs> she could give a shit, right. honestly. <laughs> I don't care if he has a girlfriend. He's in high school now. Uh, that's yeah. hysterical. Kante's <laughs> the younger one, right? Yeah. He's okay. a freshman. Okay. Uh, live your life. Have a girlfriend. Do your thing. Doesn't this matter. That's what, ha- what happens. You happy? That's all that matters. Exactly. And then, so we watched Countdown. Uh-huh. Keontae loves alarm-based humor. And okay. <laughs> in the movie... Really? <laughs> in the movie... There's a, a notification on the phone that's, like, it goes off when you have, like, a certain oh, amount of time right. to live. Okay. Because Countdown is, there's a, a, a like clock app that, yeah. That's, like, this is how long you have to live. Yeah. Okay. So it's not a, it's not a spoiler, what I'm saying, mm-hmm. if you're wanting to go see it. It's a PG-13 <laughs> horror movie, a lot of jump scares. If you're going to see it, see it in theaters because Otherwise. television. It's just kind of like, oh, that happened. Oh, it's not like a surround <laughs> surrounding feeling. <laughs> but so the alarm goes off mm-hmm. and we had gone out to dinner afterwards and somebody's alarm at another table went off mm-hmm. and Keontae went, oh, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> but then later that night, he set an alarm and titled it like death or something like something stupid oh my gosh. and did it. And it... <laughs> The whole table, we were, like, talking. Uh-huh. The alarm went off, and we looked at it, and we all went silent just because <laughs> we had just seen the movie. So it was like, what? What? And then it was like, oh, this is oh, stupid. <laughs> oh, high school boys. Yep. Fucking weirdos. <laughs> <laughs> and Keontae definitely, Keontae, when he was living with us, spent uh-huh. a lot of time with Brittany, and Brittany's, mm. like that mm-hmm. <laughs> so they definitely rubbed off on each other that's too funny <sighs> well hello hello hi everyone hi this is that uh, broad's got moxie it sure is that's cassie over there that's keeks kiana over there over yonder mm-hmm. danny's here mm-hmm. making obscene hand gestures at me which thank god the audience i know see. gosh this is a god-faring podcast no, we fun. don't talk about <laughs> we don't talk about crass things mm-hmm Ever. Ever. I've never. Talk about Bush. <laughs> <laughs> and nipples on shirtless men. Never. We don't talk about those I've things. never 
I've never. I'm. I, I don't know why. Pure you're... of heart and soul. Yeah. Mind. Yeah. I'm not a sinner. Uh huh. Anyways, fuck that. Let's get. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get into it. Let's fucking let's let's jump right in. It's episode forty-one, so that means I'm going first. You are going first. Who are you? This is forty-two. This is episode (laughs) forty-two. As Danny so politely pointed out to us. We and were by in- politely. <laughs> and we were enthusiastically wrong. It is not 41. <laughs> it isn't. 42. That's me. Okay. Who are you talking about today? I am talking about Maria Montessori. Like, like the schools. Did she invent the schools? Yes. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm interested. You okay. Me. Did you go to a Montessori school? I didn't. Neither did I. Um, but I love them. <laughs> I'm I'm a I'm a proponent. I very much I was a preschool teacher for oh, yeah. two and a half years, almost mm-hmm. three years. And it was not at a Montessori school, but one of the teachers in a different class mm-hmm. ran her classroom very Montessori style. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know anything about it at the time and I just think it's really fascinating and Seems like a great fucking, <laughs> like... Good deal. Educational tool, yeah. So, so that's who I'm talking about today. Okay. All right. Maria Tecla Artemisia Montessori was born on August... Thir- that's a hell of a that's name, That's a name. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I just saw your eyes get real big. <laughs> it just kept coming. I know. She was born August 31st, 1870 in Chiaravalle, Italy. After the family moved to Rome, Maria started elementary school at the age of six. Her early school record was, quote, not particularly noteworthy. <laughs> uh, of course. <laughs> she's six. Yeah. I mean, what do you want from her? Although she was awarded certificates for good behavior in the first grade and for, quote, lavori doneshi, which is essentially women's work. The next year. At six? At, at seven. At seven. She was like, they were like, here's a certificate. You do, you do good women's work. And what is that? Sewing buttons. Presumably. I don't know. <laughs> Classic women's work. Class- Sewing buttons. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. She graduated from secondary school, which is essentially just junior high, right? Yeah. In 1886, with good grades and examination results. So that year, at the age of 16, uh, she continued her schooling at the Technical Institute, Reggio Instituto Tecnico. That's a Harry Potter spell. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Solid. I like that. That was really good. She studied Italian. So... I know she's Italian. Mm-hmm. Well, but I was like, I studied English. Yeah. Obviously, that's the language I speak. Duh. But it really blew my mind first. I was like, oh, wow, she studied Italian. Good for her. <laughs> <laughs> so so she studied Italian, mathematics, history, geography, geometric and ornate drawing, physics, chemistry, botany, zoology, and two foreign languages. At fucking 16. Damn. She's a real renaissance woman. Yes, she is. So, 
She did very well in the sciences and just killed it in mathematics. Very Hmm. smart woman. So she initially intended to pursue the study of engineering when she graduated. However... This is the early 1900s? Wait, when was she born? She was born in 1870. And she graduated from college... So this is the late 1800s that yeah, she's doing it was this. 1890. She graduated from technic, like, sec- yeah. you know, technical school. Wow. So by the time she graduated in 1890, uh, she's 20 years old. She graduated with a certi- excuse me, a certificate in physics and mathematics, but she decided to study medicine instead. Both of these, mm-hmm. medicine and engineering, she had a degree in physics. Like all of these things were very unusual mm-hmm. for women of the time. So like you said, Renaissance woman. Yeah. Really just like, no, that, I, that's what I'm going to do. There's not a lot of female, like good female role models to, yeah. look, to uh, <laughs> look up to in those fields. But that's yeah. what she wanted to do. Huh. In 1890, after being strongly discouraged by the professor of clinical medicine, she enrolled at the University of Rome in a degree course in natural sciences. So this guy was like, well, you can't be in medicine. First Mm -hmm. of all, you're a woman. That's not going to happen. But also, you're definitely not qualified. So instead... Shut up. (laughs) Yeah. She um, she took a whole bunch of classes and earned her diploma in this natural sciences. Mm -hmm. Her degree, along with additional studies in Latin and Italian, met the qualifications for interest into the medical program. Fuck that guy. Suck it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) This will surprise no one. She was met with hostility and harassment from some of the other medical students and professors. Hmm. Seems strange. Weird, right? They're usually so welcoming. I know. How, How odd. Because her attendance of classes with men in the presence of a naked body was deemed inappropriate... She was required to perform her dissections on cadavers alone after hours, which seems super safe. (laughs) It's a horror story. (laughs) It's a horror story. It's like, oh, your presence in this room because there's a naked dead guy. Mm -hmm. Everybody. It's so offensive. I understand that you took it that way, but I just meant being with a dead body after hours. No, that's, and- <laughs> I'm getting there. I'm getting okay. there. I think it's appalling that they were like, oh, gosh, this is, you know, mm-hmm. your your delicate lady sensibilities can't handle this. So instead, we're going to put you alone in a room with a corpse after everyone else has fucking left. Uh, I don't want to be a doctor that bad. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Like, who's the more uncomfortable one here, huh? Not her. Those guys need to be professional. For real. Nudity is not always sexual. Especially when they're dead. (laughs) (laughs) Fair point. (laughs) If you think dead bodies are at all sexual, go talk Talk to to somebody. Therapist. They can help you. That's called necrophilia. They can help you work past it. Not good. All right. Fun fact. <laughs> Maria started smoking <laughs> to oh. mask the stink of the formaldehyde. Oh. Lovely. That's, because, is formaldehyde you formaldehyde know, flammable? Is that safe? I mean, it is flammable. It's a chemical. Mm-hmm. But the body smells like formaldehyde. Yeah. There, I'm assuming there's probably not just formaldehyde just laying around. 
Either way, she's smoking a pipe because Ooh. it smells bad. Yeah. Right? She's like Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> smoking away on her little corncob pipe. <laughs> That's what I like to picture. Um, she won an academic prize in her very first year. And in 1895, she secured a position as a hospital assistant, which helped her gain early clinical experience. In her last two years, she studied pediatrics and psychiatry and worked in the pediatric consulting room and emergency services. Hmm. Those two years really helped her kind of become an expert in pediatric medicine. Montessori graduated from the University of Rome in 1896 as a doctor of medicine. So after graduation... Maria continued with her research at the university's psychiatric clinic, and in 1897, she was accepted as um, a voluntary assistant there. So as part of her work, she would visit, like, asylums Mm -hmm. and other institutions around Rome where she observed children with mental disabilities. And so she started to kind of, like, read a bunch of... A bunch of dead old guys, like, approach to education and stuff. Yeah. And so this kind of, like, put to turn a new direction of thinking of, like, these children, they're still children. Mm-hmm. They're people. Regardless of ability. illness or ability or what have you, they still deserve an education and care, you yeah. know? So I'm just going to interject this boop little little tidbit of information so in march 1998 excuse me 1898 she had a son named mario okay Mm -hmm. so he is the product of a love affair between maria and another doctor named giuseppe oh so what happened was, <laughs> um, they, she was like, I don't want to get married mm-hmm. because if we get married, then I'm going to have to quit my yeah. professional career and be a wife and mother. Mm-hmm. I'm not fucking into that. Mm-hmm. So she's like, so we're not going to get married, but neither of us are going to marry other people either. Okay. Okay. But Giuseppe fell in love with another woman, mm-hmm. got married to her. Maria was fucking pissed. Mm-hmm. Probably really sad. And very sad. <laughs> so, basically, she kind of, sort of, gave her son away mm. to a family. Okay. And he lived with them and was raised by this family until, like, his teenage years. And then... He met her again mm-hmm. and then became her research assistant. Did he know that he was? Yes. Okay. I couldn't get a lot of information on that. Mm-hmm. It just seemed, and you got to do what you got to do. Mm-hmm. But I was like, hmm, this is suspect. Yeah. Anyway, that was just, that's like the one thing in her life that's like maybe scandalous. I don't mm-hmm. think it's scandalous because you do what you need to do. Yeah. Um, to provide a good, happy life for your child. Yeah. And I'm sure 
1890s, it wasn't super... <laughs> exactly. Super chill for, for to, a single mother. A, yeah. Yeah, no. Not at all. So anyway, that was just a little, like, blurb that I was like, oh, this is interesting. I'll put that in there. All right. In 1900, Maria was named co-director of the Scuola... School... Look. It's the Orthophrenic School. Because mm-hmm. it's in Italian. I can't What's remember. Orthophrenic? Is that Orthophrenic. Feet? No. Um... <laughs> Orthophrenic. <laughs> okay. Orthophrenic, it refers to... Wait, um, mouth. No, it's... it's You're trying... Look, you're, you're, you're trying all these different things. Uh-huh. Orthophrenic refers to mental disabilities. What's ortho mean? Ortho generally means bones, I think. Yeah. Because you could be, like, an orthopedic surgeon, which means ortho feet, feet, but it's bones in your feet. Oh. So, orthophrenic. Orthodontist. Orthodontist is bones in your mouth. Just say teeth. (laughs) Teeth. (laughs) Fuck you. Bones in your mouth. (laughs) So, this orthophrenic school was an institute for training teachers. Mm Mm-hmm. To teach them to educate children with mental disabilities. Okay. Okay. So, in the very first class, there were 64 teachers enrolled. They studied psychology, anatomy, and physiology of the nervous system, anthropological measurements, causes and characteristics of mental disability, and special methods of instruction. Okay. This is all in this whole vein of... These children need care. They need an education. But because of X, Y, and Z, Mm -hmm. they do not thrive and can't learn the same way that... Mm -hmm. They just have different ways of communicating. They have different ways of communicating and of learning. Yes. Mm -hmm. So the school was an immediate success and attracted the attention of government officials from the departments of education and health, from civic leaders and prominent figures in the fields of education, psychiatry, and anthropology from the University of Rome. The children in this, like, model class were, classroom, mm-hmm. the teaching at the orthophrenic school was, like, the teachers learn all mm-hmm. of these things, but also there's, like, an attached classroom where it's, like, a, like a practicum. Like, they yeah. can practice these things in a model classroom, you know, to, to gain experience. The children in the model classroom were drawn from ordinary schools, but were considered, quote, uneducable due to their differences. Um, fuck school. Yeah. <laughs> fuck it. It's That's real bullshit. So... Some of these children later passed public examinations given to, quote, normal children. Okay. So, I mean, and this could be anything from, like, children who are on, like, an autism spectrum. Mm-hmm. To dyslexia, mm-hmm. to ADHD, like everything under the sun. It's yeah. like, oh, you're not, quote, normal. Mm-hmm. We don't know what to do with you. Yeah. Which is some real bullshit. Yeah. In 1901, uh, Maria left the orthophrenic school and also her private medical practice. Mm-hmm. And she enrolled in the philosophy degree course at the University of Rome. And philosophy at that time is less what philosophy is now Mm -hmm. and more, like, psychology. 
Okay. So, it's called philosophy at the time, but it's much more about the psychology of, of humans. She also pursued independent studies in anthropology and edu- educational philosophy and did observations and experimental research in elementary schools. Though she did not graduate with a degree this time around, her newest research led her to consider adapting her methods of educating these differently abled children Mm -hmm. to mainstream education. After years of studying, writing articles, and lecturing, she was ready to put her new ideas to work. Maria was invited to oversee the care and education of a group of children in the San Lorenzo district in Rome. So, these are children just from lower income working families, kind of like daycare, because it Mm -hmm. was children from two to three years old and then children from like six to seven years old. Okay. So in 1907, Casa di Bambini, which is just... House of the baby. (laughs) (laughs) I understood that. Close. (laughs) Is children's house. Oh, House of the baby. God, that sounds terrifying. <laughs> I don't want to go there. It's, it's the loudest place in the world. I thought it sounded cute. <laughs> so at first, the classroom was equipped with a basic classroom stuff. Desk. A big desk for the teacher, a blackboard, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Little desks for the bambinis. A little desk for those little bambini desks. Activities for the children included personal care, such as dressing and undressing, care of the environment, Mm -hmm. such as dusting and sweeping, and caring for a garden. So in this first classroom, she noted episodes of deep attention and concentration, which I don't know if you've ever been in a fucking preschool classroom. I try to avoid it. There's not a lot of deep concentration. (laughs) It's a lot of chaos. (laughs) Um, and there's a very interesting, like, sensitivity to the room, like, Mm -hmm. to the environment. Yeah. Given free choice of activity, the children showed um, more interest in practical activities, Mm -hmm. like, everyday things that they saw their parents do and saw, you know, other adults do. And, like, paid less attention to actual, like, toys that were provided for them. And that was really surprising to everybody. They were like, oh, you're not motivated by, like, toys or sweets or mm-hmm. anything like that. And when you're, like, that young, isn't it just, like, instinctual for your brain to be like, okay, I need to survive this? Absolutely. because And so, like, to survive, you children are very observant, and that's why... Mm-hmm. They pick up on these things that mm-hmm. they need to... They and know what they need to learn to do. Mm-hmm. They just need to be instructed on how to do it. Exactly. Exactly. And so, over time, the biggest thing she noticed was, like, a, a spontaneous self-discipline of, like, no one's telling them what to do. They just know that... And this is something that I don't even know because I'm not great at it, but, like... If you t- if you use something and then you're done using it, you put it back. I didn't learn that. I didn't learn that either. <laughs> I didn't go to a Montessori school. 
I leave my shit everywhere. Everywhere. So do I. That's why socks never make it in the hamper and it drives Danny crazy. That's why socks are in a big mixing bowl in the podcast dome. What are they doing here? There's a wig over there. See? Nothing. Nothing has a place. And when it is, then I can't find it. Okay. So... Some of the changes that she made became, like, I don't, hallmarks, I guess would be a good word for it. Like, they become, they came, became staples. Mm-hmm. Like, every single Montessori classroom that you see will have, like, these things. So, all of the, like, big furniture is gone. It's all small tables and small chairs that children can move around and have control over. It's, like, little bookshelves. Mm -hmm. Everything at, like, a child's, like, vantage point. Yeah. Right? And let's see. What else? God, I keep losing Mm -hmm. my space. Little furniture so kids feel big. Little furniture. Exactly. So they feel comfortable in an environment that is made for them. Mm -hmm. Things aren't daunting. Things aren't daunting. Exactly. Hold on. I sound like I know what I'm talking about. (laughs) <laughs> no, but there's... Look, I've never had a child in my life. There's a certain like, amount around of, like, me. <laughs> there's a certain amount of, like, common sense, mm-hmm. I guess. Like... I used to be a child. You used to be a child. You know that as a child and going into a room that doesn't look like it's made for children mm-hmm. was like, oh, I don't belong here. You know? Yeah. Like, and when you think, at least for me, like, thinking about my first days in school Mm -hmm. everything was so big and scary Mm -hmm. but now i can go to my elementary school and walk around and be like oh this is exactly normal like human Mm -hmm. adult human size Mm -hmm. and that's like that just that difference you know yes there's just there's an element of common sense here that's Mm -hmm. like if you want to be able to relate to children and help them to understand the world around them, you need to make it accessible to them. Yeah. Which, it it seems like a fucking novel idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, clearly it was. <laughs> I'm honestly surprised at how old Montessori schools are. Or like, the... Yeah. It's not a fucking newfangled thing. Mm-hmm. We're talking, you know, 19th century... Yeah. This old, old. It's old, <laughs> pre and is it pre-industrial revolution? Yes. Yeah. And the whole fucking world uses it, which blew my mind. Everybody else does. Everybody else does. Man, not 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 necessarily everything, mm-hmm. but in most in my research, most developed countries throughout the modern world have used many elements of the Montessori method Mm -hmm. because it works. Yeah. Weird. (laughs) (laughs) Crazy. Also, we'll get there because the U.S., not into it. Yeah. The Montessori method can be boiled down to creating an environment that is child-friendly, that they can can be like little adults. They can be little self-sufficient humans. Mm -hmm. So... Have a small pitcher for water instead of a big one Mm -hmm. and little cups and little plates that they can wash and carry and take care of things. Just making this big, giant, scary world that we live in 
smaller and more accessible so they can be self-sufficient and Mm -hmm. learn those skills. And I tell you what, I had never heard of such a thing until I was a preschool teacher and saw this other, um, her name was Valerie, saw this other teacher using this method in her class. She had the most well-behaved class Mm -hmm. and they could all do things for themselves. Mm -hmm. And it was just fascinating to watch. Okay. Uh, Okay. So the first Casa de Bambini Mm -hmm. was a success. The House of Babies Mm -hmm. was a huge (laughs) success. (laughs) And so a second was opened only three months later. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so they started to just boop, 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 like pop up all over the place because it did so well. And this is when Maria began to experiment with actual, like, teaching materials. She developed this plan to use letters cut out from sandpaper or, like, movable wooden letters and different, like, picture cards with labels and stuff on it. When it's tactile, when you Mm -hmm. can actually put your hand on the letter K. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a stronger connection to your brain. Yeah. So in in that vein of, like, teaching, reading, and writing, mm-hmm. it was like, if there's something tangible that they can hold and start to put these things together themselves, it's, it's just going to create stronger... Attachments. Attachments and connections. And this took off. These children quickly gained a proficiency in writing and reading far beyond what was expected for their age. And so, again, just, it was incredible. Everything took off. This is when Maria's work began to attract the attention of international observers and visitors. Her work was widely published internationally and spread very rapidly. By 1912, so this is five years after the first House of Babies was mm-hmm. opened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's really fun to say. <laughs> now that I've let it sink in a little, I like it. By 1912, um, Montessori schools had opened in Italy, Switzerland, France, the UK, uh, and the UK. And there were plans to open more in Argentina, Australia, China, India, Japan, Korea, Mexico, Syria, Switzerland. already said Switzerland. Just kidding. (laughs) Uh, The United States and New Zealand. Wow. Also. really international. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's literally all over the globe. Yeah. What was the Japanese fact? They don't have janitorial staff. Mm -hmm. They, at the end of every school day, all the kids clean the schools themselves. Mm Mm-hmm. And so it teaches them to, like, respect the space. That's exactly. It's about being self-sufficient and having Mm self-motivation to keep your space clean Mm -hmm. and to keep yourself clean and take care of things. Oh, so, fun fact. Terrytown, New York was where... What is it called that? (laughs) I don't know. Somebody named Terry... Ran up. No, it's T-A-R-R-Y. It's probably an old word for something. I like to imagine somebody named Terry was like, this is Terrytown. (laughs) Sorry. It's okay. (laughs) Um, It's just so so pleased. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, Terrytown, New York. Terrytown, New York was where the first Montessori school in the United States was built. The inventor, Alexander Graham Bell, smart fucking guy. Ahoy, hoy. And his wife became proponents of the method. And the second school that was opened, mm-hmm. they opened in their own home. Oh, wow. Huh? Yeah. He was, they were both like, this, we're smart people. Yeah. This makes sense. Let's do it. Yeah. For those who don't know, Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone. He did. Smart fucking guy. You know how you remember that? Telephones ring. And his name is Bell. Indeed. Very, very good. (laughs) Though the Montessori method was praised, it was also questioned and criticized and was not nearly as successful in the U.S. as it was in other countries. Because (laughs) people don't like change. In America? I know. (laughs) Crazy, right? (laughs) It's, uh, it's, I can't believe it. But yeah, people were like, this is dumb. Mm -hmm. She came up with this and it doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. And that's not how we've always done things. Yeah. So. We don't need peace and self-sufficiency. We need rules and. Exactly. Strict. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. In 1932, Maria spoke on peace and education at the Second International Montessori Congress in Nice, France. This lecture, which was very important, was published by the Bureau International d'Education. The Bureau of International Education. That, very good. Look at me, translator. (laughs) Um, that was published... In um, Geneva, Switzerland, okay. where all the conventions happen, where all the big things happen. <laughs> so she's she's doing all these talks about peace and education. And well, she lived in Italy mm-hmm. at the time and Mussolini did, too. OK. OK. I've heard of him. You've <laughs> indeed. Very good. <laughs> He's like, this is great. What a great technique. Mussolini, bad guy. Yeah. But do you need to answer this? No, I, it was vibrating. Oh, the okay. Table. <laughs> so I'm lifting it. Um, so <laughs> she lived in Mussolini. <laughs> she did not. Always- <laughs> How? I'm just ruining my life. I just smashed my lip on my. A fucking stand? I'm having a time. Uh, okay. Is it bleeding? No, you're good. Okay. okay, so she lived in Mussolini. <laughs> she lives in Italy. Italy is currently being run by Mussolini. Mm-hmm. Mussolini was like, yay! He was super for Montessori schools. He's like, yes, let's do this, etc. But when she started doing these, like, peace and education things, he was like, you know, that's not really my thing. <laughs> it's not my brand. It's, I'm going down a different path aesthetically. Yeah. yeah. Peace and love, not one. <laughs> not, yeah. That's a quote not from about him. him. <laughs> he said that. <laughs> so things got a little rocky mm-hmm. between the two of them. And in 1934, Maria and her son were placed under military surveillance. Oh. Mussolini was a big fan of that. He sure was. (laughs) (laughs) He liked to know uh, what everyone was doing all the time. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, especially people who were, you know, talking about peace. Yeah. All over the place in Geneva. Oh. Mm. Not great. <laughs> so anyway, 1934, she was like, we should probably leave. Yeah. And then Mussolini was like, okay, we're not going to do Montessori stuff much anymore. So for a while, under his rule, it was yeah. not... It was already... I mean, by then, it was already very much part of their education system. Mm-hmm. But he was like, oh, no, no. You know how we've listened to this woman for the last 20 years on how to work, you know, educate? Ignore what she just said. <laughs> we don't like her anymore. Nobody listened to her. What a salty bitch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> what do you just call Mussolini a salty bitch? <laughs> I want to put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> Mussolini is a salty sal- bitch. Yes. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we should make one like that for for all of the terrible people. <laughs> we'll come up with them later. I can't on the spot. Okay. So... And that was in 1934. They left Italy. Uh, another fun story. In 1939, her and her son were doing, um, like, a training course and, like, a do- doing a lecture tour and stuff with the Theosophical Society in Madras. Okay? Mm-hmm. And so they intended to give this tour of lectures at different universities and stuff and then go back to Europe. However... When Italy entered World War II mm-hmm. on the side of the Germans in 1940, because that's mm-hmm. how history works, yeah. Britain interned all Italians in the United Kingdom and its colonies as enemy aliens. Well, that seems unfair for all of them to be. Yeah. But that's, you know, it was a, it was a hard time. It was a hard time. So... They took Mario and interned him. Mm-hmm. Not sure where. Mm. Oh, is he not? Is he found again? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He was interned for two months. She was not interned. She was allowed to stay at the, the- Theosophical Society. Yeah. But Probably because she was already outspoken against. Yes. Yeah. They were like, well, we'll give you a- your son. We can't. We don't know anything about him. Yeah. He's got to go. And he was interned for two months mm-hmm. and she was kept at this theosophical society mm-hmm. for those two months as well and remained in madras until 1946 so they were reconnected after two months of being apart but yeah. then they were there for like you know the next several years before yeah. they could leave which seems like a fucking bummer yeah so Wrapping it up, Maria spent nearly five decades researching, refining, and writing books and articles about children's education and child development. She was so invested in children's education that she traveled all over the world to share her knowledge and create spaces where they could grow and learn. Her many books, articles, and lectures have been published in hundreds of publications throughout the years, and she continued to work and give lectures, etc., until her death on May 6th, 1952, at the age of 81. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. She was also nominated, like, I, I forgot to put it in my notes, but she was also nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, like, six times. Oh, wow. Did mm-hmm. she ever get any? Mm-mm. 
that makes sense. Or else you would have said she went in full Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But she had, I mean... That's very interesting. Because mm-hmm. Montessori obvious, is a thing that you just hear all the time. Yeah. But I didn't know it was a lady. Mm-mm. I didn't know it was... I've always been under the impression, under the impression that it's like a new thing. Exactly. And I think, especially in the United States... Mm-hmm. There was, like, we tried it for a couple years, and then people poo-pooed it and didn't like it because Mm -hmm. it's a radically different way of teaching children Mm -hmm. that they were like, oh, this is newfangled and weird, and we don't like that. So it kind of died out Mm -hmm. until, until she died, until 1952. And then I think people started to talk about it a little more, and... There's, I mean, there's a handful of Montessori schools here in Portland. Uh, yeah. I've but, known a lot of people who went to Montessori schools. Exactly. But it took me being a preschool teacher to have ever heard about a Montessori school or the Montessori method or anything. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, God damn, that is smart. And that's the problem, too, is like, until we can change things. Mm-hmm. As a whole, and give these opportunities and start, you know, using this type of method kind of across the board. Mm-hmm. It's preserved it, for those who can afford it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I've always thought it, I never knew like what went into a Montessori school mm-hmm. or like even the like characteristics of one. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was for hippie parents. Yeah. And that's, and again, that's kind of how it got started up again in the 1950s. It was like, kind of mm. started to trickle in. But then the hippies and the free love in the 60s, they were like, oh my God, this is so smart. Why are we not doing more of this? And that's kind of when it, you know, really picked up, really picked up again. Anyway, that's so, that's my story. Maria Montessori. Thank you. That was good. Thank you. Now, before I start mine... Okay. We do have a, that Broad Scout Moxie thing that we're... Yes. Oh, I was... <laughs> Please given, catch on. Kiana's giving me the eyes. I don't know what the fuck she's talking about. Yeah. Explain. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we're doing a... We're going to set up a giveaway. Mm-hmm. So essentially, if you rate, review, and subscribe to us and say in your review at the end, you're going to put a little secret little secret word secret code secret code word and that's how you enter into the giveaway that's right what we're giving you is to be discussed but we think it's going to be something handcrafted yes by cassie and you get to choose what she gets to craft Mm -hmm. she's very talented thank you you won't you won't be disappointed by what you get and the code word is for the month of november yes and then you'll get be she got a couple weeks in december Mm -hmm. yes and it's going to be the same code word in every episode, mm-hmm. but you just have to, you have to know it. You have to. And it is. Enchilada. <laughs> <laughs> you could even, you know what? I would love to see someone in their review say something about us being like the big enchilada. Oh. Which would be, oh, that's very mm-hmm. like sneaky and stealthy way to <laughs> strangely put the word enchilada. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But like, we would like hmm. we would like reviews that are genuinely what you think. Yeah. And um, you know, no matter what you think, it'd be nice for five stars. <laughs> yeah. 
So, uh, but we snuck it here in the middle so that only the people who really listen. That's right. Sage. Get it. Yeah. Fuck you. I don't know. (laughs) Anywho, that was that. That was that. And now. All right. Now it's your turn. Now it's my turn. Who am I going to talk about today? Tell me. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to talk to you today about Louis Fuller. Louis Fuller. Why does that name sound familiar? Because. You talked the woman who, with the thing. Yeah. In the museum. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah. Secret behind the scenes thing. We recorded the first episode of for October, mm-hmm. but I didn't realize it was the first episode of October. So I did somebody not spooky. Mm-hmm. And then for various reasons, we had to re-record. Yes. And so I was like, oh, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to pull this and do an actual like festive person. Mm-hmm. And so I did, but now I just have these notes that I did last month yes. about a woman named Louie Fuller. So Cassie has heard, but apparently she's forgotten. I have. <laughs> and also, we're going to stick with me as I read these notes that I haven't looked at <laughs> <laughs> in a month. But I like it. My sources for Louie okay. is artsalive.com, the Mary Hill Museum, Wikipedia, because I wrote this before. Fuck you, Sage. <laughs> A article called Louis Fuller, Goddess of Light by Richard Nelson and Marcia Iwi Current. And then a book called 15 Years of a Dancer's Life by Louis Fuller. And then also an article called Louis Fuller, Lesbian Electric Fairy and the Bell Epoch by Claire Mead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> I remember liking this story the first time I listened to it. So now I'm excited to hear it again. <laughs> So, just to begin with an anecdote, which is, Cassie said, museum. Yeah. So, one of my all-time favorite museums that I've ever been to is the Mary Hill Museum in Mary Hill, Washington, which is very, a weird place to have it a is. museum. It's out in the middle of goddamn nowhere. Yeah. So, it's a small farming town about two hours outside of Portland, Oregon, but the museum itself is an eclectic art and history museum that feels like a weird anom- anomaly mm-hmm. <laughs> because it truly is like... There's a winery, and they grow peaches. And then there's a museum, at, <laughs> and also there's a replica of Stonehenge. That's right. In Mary Hill. It's a very... It's, I love it. It's, it's a, a weird fun, it's little a city. It's a fun, weird place. And I'm, I love it, and I make a point of visiting the city every time I drive mm-hmm. by it, because it's on the gorge, and you get a lovely view of Oregon, mm-hmm. because the superior state. Clearly. <laughs> All of that is to say, the museum would not be there... If not for Louis Fuller. And absent of the rest of the phenomenal shit that I'm about to tell you, mm-hmm. her commitment to spreading arts and culture to what seems like a tiny corner of the world is something that I truly admire. So, the building that was made, mm-hmm. supposed to be a rich guy's house, used to be a mansion. Okay, uh huh. But then he was like, I'm not gonna live here, and was just gonna leave the house vacant. <laughs> That's dumb. But then she pushed him to start gathering art and, like, gave him some stuff and mm-hmm. encouraged her friends to give him stuff to put into the house. Okay. And filled up this museum. And that's why it's so eclectic, because it's so many different things. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Any, I highly recommend the Mary Hill Museum, if you get a chance. Nice. To go there. Now, for Louis. Yes. Louis was born Marie Louise Fuller in Fullersburg, Illinois, on January 15th, 1862. Also, when I wrote this, mm-hmm. we've talked about a lot of Americans recently. Yeah. And I thought she was French, but she's not. <laughs> she's from Chicago. <laughs> or from Fullersburg, Illinois, near Chicago. 
Anyways, when she was two and a half years old, she walked onto a stage and recited her bedtime prayer. And this was like her start into acting, Mm -hmm. even though she wasn't supposed to be up on the stage. (laughs) She was just drawn to it. (laughs) And she knew that the stage was for her. So this began her career in the arts. For a period of time, she was a professional child actress on the stage. And then she later became a choreographer and performed dances in burlesque shows. As specifically a skirt dancer. Ooh. Um, she joined several vaudeville uh, shows and even performed in the circus. She was a woman of many talents, but was an early known free dance practitioner. So very rarely would she have a fully choreographed number planned. Mm-hmm. She would just kind of go on stage and let what happened happen. Let the happened. music take her. Yeah. And she was, it was a high stress on like natural movement and uh-huh. improvisation and all that stuff. In a number Lovely. in a number of these acts, she also began to experiment with a long silk skirt. Mm-hmm. So not only would her movements be like natural and flowy, she would mm-hmm. have this like beautiful fabric that would flow along with her. Oh, yes. And then also because it was silk, she began to add lights to her act so that mm-hmm. there would be a reflection of light and you would get a lot of different perspectives on her like different colors and tones and mm-hmm. uh just yeah. yeah watching fabric move is very it's very interesting yeah. cuz it's just it's flowy and it's fluid and Ripply. it's really lovely it's solid but also sort of like water and mm-hmm. its movements very <sighs> i love it very cool <laughs> and now <laughs> i put down and nowadays it's like whatever a light up skirt <laughs> but remember she's performing this in the late 1800s mm-hmm. so it's revolutionary that she's doing this By 1891, Fuller combined her choreography with silk costumes illuminated by multicolor lighting of her own design. So she designed the lights. Ooh. And she created her first breakthrough dance known as the Serpentine Dance. She struggled at first to find someone that would produce her work, but finally got a break when a theater hired her as an intermission act for for the comedy Uncle Celestine. Okay. Uh, her first performance received received rave reviews and catapulted her into the limelight. Nice. This was just the first I love one. that they were like, yeah, we'll use you as a, a filler for the inter- intermission. It's fine. Nobody will be watching anyway. Yeah. And then she fucking blew everyone away and they were like, oh my God, <laughs> this is amazing. Exactly. So because of the success of her work, she was like, listen, your theater's making a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I deserve some of that money because it is directly because of me. <laughs> exactly. You're welcome. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then the theater owner was like, oh, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> of course. So then the theater hired another dancer to copy her dance. Like, exactly. That's some bullshit. In place of Louie. Royally pissed off, she sued the theater. Yeah, she did. In a landmark court case known as Fuller versus Bemis, who were the theater uh-huh. owners. In this case, Louis asked for an injunction claiming that the theater stole her work without providing her with adequate compensation based on copyright infringement. So okay. she was going for copyright laws. Good. But the case was the case was resolved unfavorably for Louis know. Fuller. I don't remember that part of the story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bummer. It is. It is. But it, it, I'm having troubles with my papers. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> un- <laughs> where was I? Unfavorably for Louis. 
because, so the reason why, is a dance is not considered a, quote, dramatic composition like a play or musical arrangement are. So the judgment stated that Fuller's, quote, graceful movements were not the same as a play and therefore could not be copyrighted. This sent a precedent regarding dance copywriting until 1976, when another case set a new precedent that said dances could be copyrighted. So she just was Mm. ahead of her time. I would be very interested to know what that dance was. Yeah. I kind of imagine... I don't, are ballets considered plays? Hmm. That is... Because if it's a dance, if, like... So was it a ballet that would have then been like, no, I'm telling a story. Or like, that's I have... A, that's a... I can't answer that question. Because ballet is... I mean, a ballet, like, mm-hmm. is... It has... It's very specifically choreographed. Mm-hmm. Right? But a ballet is also a piece of music. hmm So... Yeah, I don't know. And also, Louis was... I think it was really unfair. Yeah, <laughs> it's her a case. bunch of bullshit. Because she also had a s- specific, like, lighting that There's she set up. There's a specific lighting. Like, there was specifics to everything that she There's did. There's an aesthetic. Yes. There's a whole thing built around and it was, more than just a dance. And it was completely taken away. It wasn't even, like, oh, a tribute, like, or something. Mm-hmm. It was pers- exactly the Yeah. Thing. Anyways. Blech. Louis wasn't alive for that change mm-hmm. of fate for dancers. So, obviously, she was just pissed off and decided to move to France instead and was seeking fame in 1892. Good call. She was one of the first of many American modern dancers to go to Europe to perform, and she was welcomed with open arms. She rose to fame almost overnight and became the embodiment of the Art Nouveau movement. Oh, I love Art Nouveau. And she actually, a lot of the, like, pictures you see from that movement or like mm-hmm. posters is her i love it of her uh she began adapting and expanding her costumes and lightings uh so that they became a principal element to her performances even more important than the actual choreography that she was doing because mm-hmm. remember she is free movement yeah uh the length of the skirt was also increased just became longer and longer and longer (laughs) and became the central focus. So the skirt was the central focus while the body became mostly hidden within the depths of the fabric. Very cool. It is. And they call it a skirt, but it was like a dress from, it was like neck to toe. Uh Uh-huh. Just this long fabric that she was moving with. She also began to create patents related to stage lighting, including chemical compounds for creating color gel and the use of chemical salts for luminescent lighting and garments. Mm-hmm. Fuller designed and patented all her own costumes and lighting effects and experimented with phosphorescent paint that's shown in the dark. So she not only was she reflecting light and shit, she was just glowing without lights. Radium. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. She also developed kaleidoscope, kaleidoscopic optical illusions with special mirrors and set designs. That's so cool. So everything was a spectacle. Mm-hmm. It was drama. There's a, there's a rhyme and a reason for every single thing on that stage. Yeah. Except for her movements. Mm-hmm. Which I think is cool. But obviously she did it and practiced enough times to see how her movements affected. Mm-hmm. But it was like in, in the moment kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. By holding these patents, she hoped to stop imposters from taking and performing her work without her consent, like with mm-hmm. the Serpentine Dance. She became known f- for works such as Papillon, Papillon, which means butterfly, 
mm-hmm. Violet, and La Dance de Fieu, which is the fire dance. Oh. Uh, and her works were seen as the perfect reciprocity. <laughs> reciprocity. Reciprocity. <laughs> it was seen as the perfect reciprocity between idea and symbol. Oh. In La Dance de Fieu, she stood on a sheet of glass pa- placed over a trapdoor, and a red light under the stage made it appear as if her skirt caught fire and slowly engulfed her. Very cool. She's like Katniss Everdeen. Yeah. This bitch was drama. Oh, I love it. She loved oh, it. Oh, gosh. That sounds so cool. <laughs> it re- I would love to have, like, seen it. Right? It would have Go been- back in time and have it blow your mind. Yeah. Hmm. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, her pioneering work attracted the attention, respect, and friendship of many artists and scientists who admired her lighting work and her work with chemicals, including, but not limited to, Henri de Toulouse-Lactre, whoever that is. I think he's an author. I think he's an author. <laughs> okay. Thomas Edison, Francois Raoul Larche. <laughs> that was a real American. He's French. She's in France now, so all of these names I'm butchering. <laughs> Henry Pierre Rocher. Of the Ferrero Rochers? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> Rodin. You uh-huh. know, the thinker. The thinker. The Lumiere brothers. So film stuff. Mm-hmm. And Marie Curie. That's right. Yep. Because chemicals. This is also when she befriended Sam Hill, who is the man who created the city of Mary Hill. And is mm. where the museum is. And is one of the main reasons why Oregon has all of those historic roads in the Columbia Gorge. Oh. So he's the one. He came. He was in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And he was like, you know what this bitch need? Road. And so now we have a bunch of roads. <laughs> and they're beautiful to drive yeah. on. And that's why. So they have the Stonehenge at Mary Hill. Mm-hmm. And then also the museum is mostly made of stone. Because mm-hmm. he loved cement and concrete and <laughs> was like. Uh-huh weirdly into all of that and that's why we have all of the roads so she kept in good company a lot of famous friends a lot of noteworthy people she was also a member of the french astronomical society i love that (laughs) around this time she also began a relationship with a baker named gabrielle ball gab for short Mm-hmm. Uh, was the name she typically went by, became a close collaborator of Louis's work, and in 1905, they moved in together and lived the rest of their lives with one another. Aww. Prior to this meeting, and after she had entered an openly a lesbian relationship, Louis was a wider part of the queer movement in France, where women were finding their voice and redefining their identity. Louis worked almost exclusively with only women creators, and her onstage works, draped neck, neck to toe in a long, luxur- luxurious silk, transformed herself into a fluid and malleable subject that evaded and s- any sense of form and gender. Oh, yeah, yeah. So she yeah. It, it engulfed her, so it was almost, like, amorphous. Yeah. Like, you couldn't tell if she was thick or thin mm-hmm. or... And you couldn't tell anything yeah. about her. She was just, like... You were only enraptured by the, th- the, th- the movement of, this, of the thing on stage, the fabric. Um, also, before I continue talking about art history and stuff like that, mm-hmm. this is not an original thought. This is specifically the article, Louis Fuller, Lesbian Electric Fairy by Claire Mead. Mm-hmm. And Claire Mead did a wonderful job explaining 
things okay, to me. Okay, good, good. So I just... She already read it, wrote it yeah. perfectly. Yeah. So this is a lot of, like, Thank quoting you, her direct works. <laughs> nice. Thanks, Claire. You're great. Where was I? Okay. So feminist art historian Caroline Goddard notes on the choice of the, the long fabric and everything. A lesbian way of life is more than just sleeping with a woman. In a period in which men are everywhere, she re-centers the conversation. While all men until then have been proclaiming about themselves, a woman can suddenly decide who is important. And again, Claire Mead explains better than I ever could. Experimenting with shapes, forms, playing with dual identities and personas, and a hide-and-seek illusionist game, it's hard to see Louis' act as anything but queer in its very nature, performing her identity in a dual game of revelation and dissimulation. Being openly queer, yet hiding in plain sight on stage, she had a perfect control over the visual effects surrounding her performance while never crafting an actual onstage persona and marketed her own image skillfully while never being the object of fantasy or objectification. The point is not so much that her work was chaste and ethereal because of her lesbianism, but rather that she freed herself from a vast amount of normative constraints to, to develop her, form her performances. That's fascinating. Yeah. Look, people who... I, quick note. People who are art critics or literary critics... Mm -hmm have such mm, they're just they just they just know <laughs> yeah <laughs> what the fuck they're talking about they articulate things they articulate very well beautifully and and somebody who can take what they what they see on stage mm -hmm. and read so much into it and be like I get it on a whole other fucking level that mm. my brain can't process and yeah. then write it so <laughs> eloquently. Yeah. I'm like, well, shit. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, like, one of the points that she makes that I, like, would have never thought about is that Louis Fuller was a dancer mm -hmm. and a famous one at that, but she wasn't, like, any, like, sexual object of the gaze yes. in the way that dancing is often taken yeah and i thought also when you just said of the gays i thought you oh because <laughs> that's what i i G -A -Z -E. say I, I say the gays like you know it, and it just made i was yeah. it took me a second and i was like what oh oh they're the other word <laughs> thank you for clarifying yeah, that <laughs> No problem. Thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> <laughs> also, the fact that she was so famous in her time. And, like, if you look at anything from that time period, yeah. it has her on it. But we don't know who she is. Exactly. You go, oh, look. And, and the same. She's the same in all of these different paintings and mm -hmm. et cetera. But there's no name to it. She's just there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's just a, f a figure mm -hmm. that's been in our minds, but it's not her. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's great. <laughs> so back to my notes. In 1908, she published a memoir of her life called 15 Years a Dancer's Life. And the introduction was written by Anatoly France. And I'm going to read an excerpt now. Okay. Because I thought it was really nice. Okay. And this is Anatoly's first impression of Louis. 
I saw an American lady with small features, with blue eyes like water in which a pale sky is reflected, rather plump, quiet, smiling, refined. I heard her talk. The difficulty which, with which she speaks French adds to her power of expression without injuring her vivacity. It obliges her to rely on the rare and exquisite at each moment to create a requisite expression, the quickest and best churn of speech. Her words gush forth. The unaccustomed linguistic form shapes itself. As assistance, she employs neither gestures nor motions, but only the expression of her eyes, which change like the landscapes that are disclosed along a beautiful highway. And the basis of her conversation, now smiling and now serious, is one of charm and delightfulness. That's just so delightful. Yeah. What a great wit. Look. Again, with the eloquence. And what a great way to, like, express your first impression of a person. Mm-hmm. Man. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Also, I liked in some remembering in some of the things that I was right, reading. She wasn't graceful in the way that we think dancers are. Yeah. So she was, like, chubby and, like, people said that she was sort of uncoordinated. <laughs> Which is very funny. That her stage presence and her stage persona was so different. And yeah. so there were, that's when Claire Mead was talking about like duality mm-hmm. in her life, that's what it was. Yeah. Um, after World War I, Louis danced infrequently, but formed a school in Paris and sent her students called the Fullerettes or the Muses <laughs> to all parts of Europe to perform. In 1926, she last visited the United States in company with her friend, Queen Marie of Romania, who also has a lot of stuff at the Sam Hill Museum. Okay. And later that year, she made her final stage appearance performing the Shadow Ballet in London in 1927. By the end of her life, she became fatally ill from the toxic chemicals she used in her stage effects. Mm. First, her eyesight began to fail her, and then at the age of 65, on January 1st, 1928, in Paris, she died of pneumonia. She was cremated, and her ashes were interred at the Columbarium at Pierre Lachaise Cemetery in Paris. Hmm. There was a movie made about her, if you're interested, but don't watch it. <laughs> it's it shit? Yeah. It's supposed to be Ugh. wildly inaccurate. Poorly represent lesbian relationships and also just inserts a male love interest into her life. Oh, for That was sake. never there. Uh, so, if you like her and you have the ability to, go to the Mary Hill Museum mm-hmm. where they have... There's... The Lumiere Brothers did a video of the Serpentine Dance. Mm-hmm. It wasn't her dancing it. Okay. But it was with her approval and she was there while it was being performed. Gotcha. So, they have a video of that playing... They have all of her posters. They have letters everywhere. If you're going to learn about her. Oh, man. I can't wait to go. go. There. It's yes. really cool. Also, while you're there, it's not summer anymore. Mary Hill Peaches. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> that was Louie. Oh, I ugh. I love that story just as much the second time you read it. Thanks. <laughs> I can't wait to go to this museum. It's on the list of... It's so cool. It's It sounds fucking fascinating. Yeah. We should all go. That's a great plan. I'm down for that. Listeners, really, you guys want to go? Hit us up. Let me just talk about this museum because okay. I think it's really cool. Yeah, please do. So, it's three stories. Four. There's a basement. Okay. 
So in the basement, it's where Louis Fuller's, she's all up in the hallway, all mm-hmm. of her stuff. And then it leads to this area that's Native American art. Mm-hmm. It's very pretty. And then you go to, you keep going down. And I think it's a changing exhibit. But the last time I went there, it was Rodan stuff. Okay. Like, you know, like Gates of Hell. The sure, thinker, sure. And like uh-huh. different actual, not the actual stuff, but all of his molds and sketches were there. Nice. The first floor is the Queen of Romania's, like, furniture. (laughs) It's a lot of cool... It's, like, a lot of her cool artifacts and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then the second floor is essentially, like, your classic artwork paintings. Mm -hmm. Some some local, some abroad. Mm -hmm. Very cool. And then the third floor is in the 1920s when they were, you know, depression, war, everything was happening. They didn't have enough fabric to do, like fashion week and okay. stuff like that to put on models mm-hmm. so they put mannequins about like hip in height like okay. my hip okay and that's how they would show off the clothes so they just have all of those mannequins from the 1920s in the actual clothes so let me one. let me get this straight we're talking mm-hmm. about child-sized mannequins yeah but they're not they don't have like child um proportions and dimensions and stuff it's just very intricately designed yeah i bet clothes and it's 1920s so it's a lot of like oh gorgeous loves things it's really cool and then if we go back to the basement and go to the cafe that they have there Uh which is expensive don't eat like bring your own food but they have a hallway of chess sets and like pieces and stuff from all around the world and it's really so cool I don't know how to play chess, but I think they're cool. But, like, like seeing little figures and uh-huh. stuff in, like, different ways, different cultures. Interpret. Like, design and, yes, the king yes, and the yeah. queen. And the, it's That's so really cool. cool. It's All so right. Cool. Okay. We're going on a field trip. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> we, could, we could do it for Patreon. We could. We could go do... We should go up there soon because the gorge is going to start getting snowy, snowy and icy. <laughs> and fucking terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it was very lovely. Thank you so much. I'm so glad I got to hear that again. Maybe you'll remember it this time. <laughs> shut, your, shut your mouth. <laughs> okay. So we've reached the end. Mm-hmm. And I would like to clarify about the giveaway that... You enter into a pool, and then somebody at the end of the month gets drawn. So yeah. one person. Yeah. You get an entry. for e- Not for each review, because you can leave probably a bunch of them. But I don't think you can. Oh, can you? Okay. I think it's limited, like, once a month or gotcha. something. Gotcha. Like okay. So you leave us a review. Put in there enchilada. Tell us what you think. <laughs> Give us five stars. Your name is going to go in a bucket. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the month, we will announce who that winner is. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll be in touch. Yeah. And also... We can't see things that aren't on Apple. Yeah. So if you screenshot wherever you leave a review and send it to our email, mm-hmm. you can be yeah. entered in. Absolutely. That will work perfectly. I just said that. I didn't discuss that before. <laughs> <laughs> She's gone rogue. <laughs> All right, Anyways, everyone. Please rate, review, and subscribe. You get a chance to get something. Do the thing. Do the thing. You yeah. can follow us all on our social medias. That Broads Got Moxie on Facebook and Instagram and at Broads Got Moxie on the Twitter. Exactly. And then to email us, please email that Broads Got Moxie at gmail.com. That's right. 
Okay. All right. That's it. Bye. Bye. Music by Sage Krenning. Cover art by Vinnie Navarrete. Produced and edited by Danielle Barsanti. Side effects of listening to this podcast may include excessive moxie, zero tolerance for the patriarchy, sass mouth, excessive sweating, tipsy tittering, desire to stick it to the metaphorical man, fear of cats, empowering women, clammy hands and feet, the inability to do math, lack of patience for the bullshit, thirst for knowledge, questioning the system, cravings for bougie chicken, vodka, and justice, and in some cases can cause death on hills.